Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon brought to you by Cooker Borough. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't Cricket. And I meant to mention this last week, but I'm thrilled to have Jeff Lemon in London with me. It's a stunning spring day at Lord's, the home of cricket. We're both sitting here in our tuxedos, ready to walk downstairs to the long room for today is one of the most enjoyable and, I guess, special days on the cricket calendar for those nerds who collect Wisden Almanac copies, which uh, Jeff and I, you and I, both have been from for a long time and contributing to the Almanac, and, and tonight is the night when, when all is released, and that's why we're sitting in the library at Lord's. But it's also a, a particularly special day for you, Jeff, because this morning it was formally announced that you indeed have been gonged as having written the Book of the Year for 2019 in, in Wisdom Almanac. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, you, you can't actually tell this if you're listening on a podcast, but I'm doing like that sort of slightly embarrassed smile thing. Where it's, <laughs> um, it, it feels strange. It's weird to be wearing black tie. I feel like a, a sea otter trying to drive a golf cart. You know, it's not my natural environment. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't really know. It, it, it still hasn't, it hasn't really hit home that this thing has happened. So we, we're going to go into this dinner and have the presentation and then it'll be real. But it's, it's a bit more real today than it was yesterday. I've known for a little while, but I had to keep it under wraps. Um, but it was very much a theoretical thing and now it's a, an actual thing that has happened. Yeah, a lot of people saying a lot of very kind things about you today. And yeah, as you say, you jumping into a tuxedo. I've known you for quite a long time now. I've never so much as seen you wear leather shoes, let alone the full penguin <laughs> suit, bow tie, the works. I mean, you would have had to have gone to, you know, big and small to have got a tux that was your size wouldn't you <laughs> the, the, i think the um the sleeve length was extra extra long <laughs> by the time they found a jacket that would fit me but yeah I've, I've purely rental i still am not comfortable i don't want to be a person who owns a dinner suit and so the guy was sort of doing that oh you know well i mean if you're renting it and you've got two events you're, you're almost at the point where you might as well just buy it and i was like i would rather pay so much more money to not own a dinner suit than to own one this is where you and i differ i, I fell for that trap in 2009 and mercifully i still fit into mine albeit just we're going to talk about your book in a bit of detail later 
but there's another book that I want to talk about and we're going to do a lot of interrogation of over the next it's bigger. 45 minutes or so. It is a lot bigger and a lot more important because the man sitting to our left is none other than Lawrence Booth, who is the editor of the Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac. He's been doing so, or doing that job rather, since 2012, making this his eighth edition. I reckon, Lawrence, only four people have edited Wisdom now for longer than you and edited more than eight editions, which in itself is quite the achievement. Indeed, it's the, it's the same amount of Wisdoms that Matthew Engel edited the first time around before he came back for a second stint. In your day job, when you're not editing Wisdom, you are, of course, the cricket writer for the Daily Mail and the Sunday Mail and formerly of, of The Guardian Parish too. Uh, thanks, Lawrence Booth, for joining The Final Word. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I feel honoured. It's slightly worrying to hear that stat. It makes me feel older than I am. I just turned 44 <laughs> and I remember when I got the job I was about well I felt like I was about 28 I think in fact 36 so mm. yeah tempus fugit as we probably say too often in wisdom this is a huge couple of weeks for you but specifically today when the book comes out tr- traditionally though it, it's a big day because your twitter mentions are, are a sewer because you haven't named Virat Kohli as one of the five <laughs> wisdom cricketers of the year but this year of course the great Virat has been named as one of the five for his amazing season in, in 2018 so you must be relieved that you don't have to spend the whole day explaining to people why and how that decision is made each year well it was slightly unnerving actually some people were suggesting that if you're not getting abused by by fans of great cricketers like Virat Kohli then wisdom isn't isn't worth publish, publishing I think some people <laughs> People follow me purely to read the abuse I get on the on the day of when we reveal the five. I think my my mentions in India have gone up through the roof, and no one has said why no Sachin Tendulkar yet. So that's a bonus. <laughs> There's always time. <laughs> you can name him again next year, I'm sure. <laughs> However, but given that the five is a one-off concept, it's going to be hilarious next year. Say he makes I don't know eight hundreds at the World Cup and leads India to, to triumph, <laughs> and then he's not in the five. Yeah. If you stick around for edition number nine, that is going to be a very good time. I'm already dreading that one, and I am doing edition number nine. So um, touch. <laughs> Would he? I'm actually, I wouldn't wish failure on any man, but I might make an exception this time. Is this the sort of book where, or rather, the gig just, just w- mediocrity, just wish mediocrity, you know, <laughs> average. 44, yeah, that's 200s, nice. average that's 44, they're your number. the semis. Yeah. Is this sort of book where you need to have a, a quite lengthy dismount plan? Like, if you wanted to stop editing Wisdom, would you have to have it planned out a couple of years in advance and have your successor picked and anointed like it was the coronation, you know, with the Queen back in 1952 or whatever it was? Or, or is it, a, or could you theoretically pull the pin tomorrow? No, I, well, actually, I could, I suppose. I'm, I'm supposed to give, I think my contract says three months' notice either way. Right. But I think realistically, if I were to decide whatever edition was going to be my last, I'd let Bloomsbury, the publishers, know well in advance of my last book so that they could appoint someone and they could get used to the job and so on. A a massive part of the Wisdom release day are the editor's notes, which is, I guess, your your chance to have a real crack at different parts of the game and knowing full well that they'll be reported around the cricketing world. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that in this edition, how much work do you put into that product and not just in the way of time, but for how many months are you sketching it? Like, What's your process each year of knowing that the whole world will be watching what you write there? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that is the interesting part of the job, actually, because if I, if I were to write precisely what I write in the Wisdom Notes in the Daily Mail, it would be roundly ignored and probably booed and jeered and, and rightly so when i write it in wisdom it becomes an international headline so <laughs> it does have a way of focusing the mind i keep notes for the notes throughout the year i have a yellow notebook appropriately enough where i jot down any observation that occurs to me if i if i'm feeling disciplined enough and then i go back to it at probably early january and and look at everything i've written down there's probably about 30 or 40 thoughts and i think w- which of these uh, could be turned into paragraphs or to thoughts which is the lead item Stuff may have changed in the meantime. Sometimes stuff blows up in late January, early February, and you're suddenly having to recast them. But I, start, I don't start writing until the middle of January, and I try to get them done by the middle of February because we go to press at the end of February. So it, I'd say it's a month of working on the actual act of writing. Yeah, I really enjoyed them this year, I think, because partially I, I felt as though 
I kind of predicted what your first topic would be, what your lead <laughs> item would be, because this time last year you had a, an essay in the Almanac from the Chief Executive of the ECB, Tom Harrison, which spoke about the, the new competition of cricket that was coming to England in 2020 and conveniently didn't mention one way or the other about 2020 cricket or the 100, of course. They knew that was it maybe a week or two after the, the book was coming out that they were going to go ahead and announce what is now known as the 100. So I, I wasn't surprised when you chose to, I guess, load up <laughs> both barrels on that. You, you know, in, in a, yeah. in, not in, a, uh, in an egregious way, but you were able to like, use that space to make your point there. So was it pretty early on you made your mind up you were going to go after that? Yeah, I mean, I just saw during the course of last year when the ECB completely failed to explain why they were introducing a fourth format, a format that's not played anywhere around the world, spending a lot of money on it, going well over budget, etc., etc., precisely why they were doing it. And you could see on, on Twitter there's a lot of anger among the fans. They felt they weren't being spoken to. The, the so-called consultation process with the players apparently involved three players. And I don't think they, much was explained to them. So th- there were lots of issues to take with it. And, and the, the sense of fury really grew on Twitter. And it was something that was unavoidable. And though it starts in a year's time, it felt like the issue of the moment. It's crazy, really. This summer in England, we have a, a World Cup and an Ashes. It should be the summer to end all summers. In fact, it probably will end all summers because <laughs> from 2020, the, the, if the 100 takes off, English summers will never be the same again. So it, it felt like a natural thing to get angry about. Unfortunately, I did feel angry about it. And I, I should add, though, it wasn't a revenge attack on Tom Harrison. No, I'm, I'm, being a bit, I'm, being a bit cheeky, I'm being a bit cheeky. I mean, some people have asked me about that, but no, it, I, it, was, it was something I felt strongly about. Yep. And um, it's, I've been asked about it lots of times today in the various interviews I've done. And the comparison with Brexit, I'm sure some people could say it's trivial, but it actually makes a lot of sense in that you've got a massive change which didn't really seem to be necessary, doesn't seem to serve any practical purpose and uh, has been disastrously implemented and is potentially going to cause a huge amount of trouble and, and possible ruination. So the two things just line up side by side. Yeah, Brexit, I think, got a mention in the third part of the notes. I mean, I did say, though, that the where the analogy breaks down is that Brexit had 52% support of the country, mm. um, that the 100 had on barely 0.52% of the country, <laughs> as far as I could tell. So that's where it breaks down. Some people thought Brexit was a sensible idea, yet to find many outside uh, the ECB and chief execs who are getting some money to, to host the tournament, who think it is. In order to get plenty into this conversation, we're going to keep pushing sure. through your notes one by one. Um, you, you delve into the cricket side as well, which sometimes I find as a journalist, that can be a, a touch challenging because you know, we're observers of the game. I know you wrote a piece for the Night Watchman a couple of years ago about the importance of the observer and being outside of the professional game. But all the same, the, your job is to reflect on matters of on the 22 yards that matter most I suppose and you got stuck into the England batting and um, you know over a lengthy period of time especially at the top of the order in- more instructively perhaps um, your view that Joe Root has, has probably fallen out of the top four if you can just explain how you see especially Joe Root having been part of that that quartet that led the world and, and how he's perhaps in the last 12 months fallen back to suffraction yeah I mean Root kept being bracketed with Coley, Williamson and Smith as the, they were the four great young mm. things all about the same age their records are reasonably similar Coley's pulled away is on a different plateau from three of them Smith's been banned for a year so it's hard to gauge where he is although he was probably the best test batsman of the four Coley indisputably the best white ball batsman Kane Williamson just oozes class every time he plays and Root has just fallen away a bit he kept he had a problem of not converting any of his 50s he's rectified that a bit recently yeah. but his test average has dropped below 50 which this day and age is the the benchmark of a great batsman it probably used to be 45 it's now 50 and I just think he's better than that he, he, we all know he's better than that we've all seen him play he is he is the best English batsman if you take Peterson is a different kind of genre almost, but, but Root is the best English batsman probably since Ken Barrington. Certainly mm. had the highest average since him, and that was in the late 60s. So I think England need him to stop sort of hiding behind pretty 70s 
and saying that it's the way I play, which is how Peterson used to sort of explain his own game. Um, he should be getting 150s and 200s like he was three years ago. And that's what you know the Australians said for a long time when they were having a, a miserable run or a different miserable run with the bat um, was <laughs> oh that's just you know the play your natural game kind of mantra. We hear all the time, of course, that Test cricket is dying or in trouble. We've been hearing that for a hundred years. You've got the new competition apparently needing to come in to redress some massive deficit, even though, as you say, you've got a World Cup and it ashes in the same summer. It's going to be an immense summer. But also we've just had one of the best years of Test cricket we've probably seen. Just some incredible competitions, some incredible results. Sri Lanka going to South Africa and winning away. Australia's uh, resistance in Dubai. The, the India-England series last summer, which was outstanding. The, Test cricket's almost never been faster and more full of thrills. So the idea of it being in trouble seems a bit peculiar. Yeah, I mean, if you read back any, pick up any wisdom, they will lament the health of Test cricket. It's, it's sort of a perennial existential angst that, that cricket faces. And I, so I, I dealt with it in a couple of paths this time because Shashank Manohar, who was then mm. the chairman of the ICC, said that Test cricket was dying. And I simply made the point that, generally speaking, I'd, I'd applaud that because I want people to take seriously the gradual death of Test cricket, but this time it didn't seem appropriate. I mean, you mentioned a couple of series there. When what happened really over the last few months was that teams started winning away from home and for a long time the complaint has been there's no time for acclimatisation, home teams just steamroller, it's losing its meaning but we had New Zealand winning in the UAE against Pakistan, astonishingly I mean the first test was by four runs but nevertheless England in Sri Lanka 3-0 I know people said Sri Lanka weren't great but that was still a good win by England um, India and Australia for the first time and then as you say probably the most astonishing of them all, Sri Lanka uh, in South Africa. So, so long as those results keep happening, and so long as, actually, Guy, we mentioned earlier, Kohli supports Test cricket, and therefore India does, and therefore the world game is propped up, Test cricket will keep going. doesn't mean we'll stop saying it's dying each year in Wisden, but um, <laughs> it, was, it was nice to have a bit of a break from that this year. The, the next couple of sections, for me anyway, spanned the, the, the best thing I kind of saw last year in, in Test cricket, and, and then um, lamentably the worst. So the, the Alistair Cook tribute in there as, as part of his retirement at the Oval. Um, an amazing day to be watching Test cricket. You obviously recognise Cook and Anderson on the on the front of the book this year, so let, let's perhaps deal with that. So the decision, I mean, it seems like an obvious one, um, given it was the, the moment of the summer, but last year, the moment of the summer, which you put on the front of the book, did prompt a, you know, a degree of debate, whereas this year people were, I think, from what I could tell anyway, relatively happy with the decision you made. I think so, yeah. I mean, last year you alluded to Zanya Shrubsole holding aloft the, the World Cup, and I think the reason it prompted debate was because she wasn't a man. This year, it was our last chance basically to have England's leading test run scorer and leading test wicket taker in a game that was highly germane to both. Cook had just played his last test, scored 147, and Anderson had just overtaken Glenn McGrath as the leading uh, seam bowler in test history with the last ball of the test mm. and with their gasometer in the background. And the oval, of course, is always redolent of farewell and, and nostalgia. So it, it seemed to work. And, and the, the the flip side of that was the, the sandpaper controversy, which um, you had a, a fair degree of fun with. I mean, elite hypocrisy was the subheading. I'm not sure if that was your work, but I, I did like that. Um, you, you compared David Warner to life in the Middle Ages, nasty, brutish and short. Um, and Australia were undone by hubris, the hubris nemesis 1-2, which has kept playwrights in the business since ancient Greece. So, well, kept playwrights <laughs> in business, that. rather, since ancient Greece. So I, I guess wh- where you came to that was that um, Australia, your, your issue with Australia wasn't necessarily the act of ball tampering as much as their belief that more broadly they're above the law. 
not just the laws of the game, but that, you know they they sit one out and one back, and they can pick and choose to behave the way they see fit. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you two are much closer to this story than I am, so I'm sort of loath to start lecturing you about how Australian cricket's been over the last few years. But it seemed from afar, anyway, that the pressure they were faced from the, the executive to to keep winning matches effectively took over the attitudes in the dressing room. They appointed Darren Lehman, who um, was rough and ready, is a polite way of putting it. Um, and they, they, they kicked out Mickey Arthur, who did have a sense of discipline, but the whole idea of homework gate didn't go down well with Australian cricket. So they were, they were allowed to get away with things. The talk of the line started to grate with other sides. And, of course, then it, it explodes in this farcical, disastrous episode of a young chap sticking sandpaper down his trousers and there we go <laughs> it's the first of many references to that in the book jeff i love the fact that lawrence managed to get hannah gadsby the australian comedian into the notes as well her first mention in wisdom but i'm going to try and make sure it's not her last oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was somewhat unexpected i believe it was her line about uh, the australians dictating the laws of behavior was akin to a nose being lectured by a fart um, <laughs> god bless netflix is all i can say <laughs> but i was also interested that you you made a point of uh, talking about Candace Warner, David Warner's wife, and her treatment in South Africa, which was something that was glossed over largely in the discussion. Adam and I spoke mm. about it on the podcast at the time, and I wrote about it in the book, but we didn't notice uh, a lot of people picking this up as being an important part of the topic in general. Yeah, I felt quite strongly about that. Um, uh, I'm glad you, you picked it up, really, because... It spoke volumes for the ingrained sexism in cricket. And I mean, I mentioned in those couple of paragraphs about the supposedly hilarious sledge from Rod Marsh to Ian Botham. I don't think it was ever said, by the way, but a couple of years ago, mm. one of the Yorkshire sponsors asked people to vote on the funniest sledge in cricket history. And this one came up. Botham walks out to bat. Marsh says to him, supposedely, how's your wife and my kids? And, and Botham says, the wife's fine, but the kids are retarded. Now, this is held up as the epitome of wit in cricket. But right. but without people realising, it also speaks volumes of sexism. And I thought that mm. the treatment of Candice Warner was, was of the same ilk, really. Um, people thinking that it was funny to wear masks of someone that she'd been involved with years earlier. She, she had a miscarriage after that tour. And, of course, we don't want to mix up causality and correlation necessarily, but it can't have helped a pregnant woman to be dealing with that stress. Mm. Um, and whatever you think of David Warner, that was it was unacceptable. Yeah, if you want to hear a, a lengthy discussion about that, Jeff, and our conversation after the Port Elizabeth Test match, we spent an hour on it, um, which uh, which yeah. uh, feeds directly off really what you're saying there, Lawrence. Um, yeah, but, but it's interesting, as you say, that, that it, that's held up as the epitome of wit, which is not just sexist, but also offensive to people with disabilities. Well, so, precisely, yeah, it's, on so many levels. Next on the, on, the, uh, on the shopping list was the Ben Stokes trial which of course happened since the last time the book was published even though the the incident was about nine months before that he was suspended for 17 games but he was acquitted but he went on to struggle with the bat and and that's perhaps the angle you took was the not really focusing on the incident at at embargo nightclub great joint uh but the um but but the way you (laughs) see his game may have changed with with bat in hand since yeah i just felt that there's been a perhaps subconscious um attempt to look responsible with the bat his his test average with the bat has has gone down to 28 since uh, since he came back after mm. his ban and his strike rate's gone down from something like 63 to 48 his one day batting strike rate has gone down as well he scored 50 off about 100 balls against India at Trent Bridge slowest England one day 50 for a decade you know yeah. these things one, one or two happen and you think uh, it's it, it's it's a coincidence when they you string them all together you start to think there's a pattern Moeen Ali made a comment about this the other day so mm. for the sake of English cricket and Probably world cricket, really. We want to see Stokes hitting out the park again. It's a, it's a great sight, and I hope he doesn't lose that mongrel. It's interesting that you brought up uh, environmental factors in cricket, which is something that 
largely the sport seems to ignore and it is something that crosses my mind every time we're leaving a game and we see mountains and mountains and mountains of plastic crap from a day out you know where all of the sort of plastic beer cups and food wrappings and the the, the random tap that they hand out with the the signs and the the sort of promotional stuff and there's just trucks full of this crap that gets driven away and you think that's you know how necessary is most of it it's also something i think about every time i'm flying from one country to another to cover a cricket match it's it's not something i've uh, ethically resolved with myself that there's a vast amount of international travel to go and watch cricket and is that actually something that's uh, defensible I, i don't really have an answer cricket has a huge problem with it i'm very grateful to tanya aldred who last year wrote the first cricket and the environment piece which will now become an annual piece and before the, the world heats up too much and wisdom can't come out anymore um and and she what she did this year in fact she went to every test board and she asked them about their green credentials and most didn't reply the three who did the answers were pretty feeble i mean new zealand came back with an answer and basically said look we will take our, our um, lead from the government west indies said yeah no that's a good idea we should be more friendly uh, we, we should be more green conscious it was clear really that cricket isn't dealing with it i mean you mentioned all the all the tatic games yeah the the air miles are a, a, sho- a shocking fact you know when you when you, you see darren uh, Dwayne bravo flying out to essex for one t20 game as mm. happened a few years ago these kinds of things does cricket really care uh, i think it's got a great chance to do something about it because Though the whole world will suffer from climate change, the cricket countries in particular and in very different ways are all going to suffer. So um, it's got a chance to kind of take a moral stance on this. Yeah, it was instructive uh, that only three boards replied. Australia didn't reply to Tanya's inquiry. And I should add, Tanya's had some success with this as well. Is it it all England grounds are going to stop handing out that rubbish this year, the fours and six signs? I think she's had a breakthrough with the ECB. which something um, like that. So so, so more power to her. If you name and shame, it's amazing what happens. Funny that. Uh, Overrates talking about naming and shaming. Jason Holder was this year when he was banned from the third test match of that series against England. But, uh, I mean, you're coming at it from the perspective that um, we need to have a a closer look across the board. It isn't about turning captains into villains, but but at the same time, there's got to be an accountability mechanism. No one seems to have squared the circle on this yet, Lawrence. We need to focus more of our attention on it across the board. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I wrote probably my first or second wisdom about overrates, and I had some people on Twitter saying that this is a media obsession, but then I had other people on Twitter saying, I'm fed up with going to a test match and seeing 82 overs in a day. I want, mm. I want whatever that is, 10% of my, my earnings. But Alex Hales, do you remember, famously yeah. refunded an England player 10% of, of the, the, the overs that weren't bowled one day. So <laughs> my point about Holder, I think, was... You know, we, we can't have it both ways. We can't sort of say we should speed up, but then when just because West Indies beat England and we want West Indies to be good and hold as a nice guy, we suddenly forget the over rate. And the other point I made, and not everyone will agree with this, is that if you bowl 51 overs by tee on the first day, your fast bowlers can take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> and it, is, it becomes a tactical means, and you can pick different kinds of teams. And it, particularly for West Indies, that, that works very well. There was a, a section, I think you, this is the second year you might have done this, where you've mentioned gambling and cricket, and cricket is having a problem with gambling, especially well, in this country at the very least. You, you've been able to interrogate it. There was nearly a tragedy last year with a, with a suicide which related to gambling, which you used to get into it. Again, an, another issue where you've got an opportunity to shine a light, shine a light on it via the editor's notes, and hopefully it will prompt a, a broader discussion. Yeah, I mean, you're conscious of not making the, the notes too sort of socially conscious. You know, that not all readers are going to appeal to that but i do think it's a chance to to take cricket out of its bubble i think and mm. the, the gambling and the environment and the candy swarner these these are all things i feel strongly about so i feel i have to be true to myself when i write about these things um yeah patrick foster was the guy you mentioned who stood on at the end of a train track at slough and considered throwing himself off he had debts of one hundred and fifty thousand, and he just put fifty thousand on a horse race and the horse came second and it wasn't an each way bet so he lost a lot there and he's gone around and warned talked to counties about the problems of getting into to gambling and he thinks 
he thinks it's a problem. We had mental health became an issue about 10, 15 years ago through Marcus Treskoffic. That's no longer yeah. a taboo. He thinks that gambling could be the next time bomb in county cricket. The World Cup, uh, it's obviously coming up. It's a big issue, but the issue is particularly around the shrinking of that World Cup. And you made the comparisons that quite a few people have made to the Rugby World Cup and the way that they're expanding that and, and have been so proactive at making sure they get more countries involved and cricket at the same time has pulled up the drawbridge and said that they don't want the riffraff coming in and it's only for the the top end of town. Yeah, it's a curious one. I was in Malahide last year, terrific test match against Pakistan, Ireland could have won after after, um, following on, which would have been amazing, but you just felt that there was a sense of sadness around as well because they hadn't qualified for the World Cup. And when you threw West Indies into that qualifying tournament, I mean... I know they got lucky in the end, thanks to a dodgy LB against Scotland, but they were probably always likely to qualify. So were Afghanistan. So it left, it left no room for anyone else. And there's just a sense of anger now around the world. I think this World Cup is quite a good format, actually. All play all, top 10, top four going to the semi-finals. That, that works quite well, worked quite well in 92. But we should have something like a qualifying tournament right before it, or we should have a bit more space or two leagues. We should have something that just gets people involved, because otherwise the drawbridge comes up and the game shrinks. Yeah, I've been writing the last couple of weeks about we actually found the perfect format in 2003. We nearly got there in 99, but the second state, the problem we've got with the World Cup is that, well, certainly the last time around was that the group games aren't competitive because eight teams qualify for the second stage, that is the quarterfinals. Not enough pressure is on early on. You can afford to lose a couple of games and so on. The Super Six, on the other hand, um, that did... Um, narrow the second round considerably and, and having two groups of seven we had that in 2003 so it's, it's a shame that we've we've come so far and yet the solution the 2000 rather 1992 solution yeah we shrunk um, we, we've gone the wrong way remarkably yeah, yeah. since then despite how much progress has been made and in the case of Ireland a, a full member nation now of the ICC not playing in the World Cup likewise Zimbabwe that's the first time that's ever happened this year so good job you shining a light on that Lawrence a fraction lighter you put an entry here about Enid Bakewell's last test match which was 50 years ago this year, 1969, uh, where you reference the fact that she, we talk about Alistair Cook's perfect farewell and uh, how farewells are seldom nice in cricket. On her last test, she broke Jeff's favourite stat, the Bannerman, uh, making 112 out of 164 at the last time she batted for England, and then took seven for... F- sod all in the second dig against the West Indies that's the greatest dismount ever well, as, well, as well as other wickets in the second inning so she had 10 for, for the match Ten in the she match, match and 60 odd in the first innings I mean <laughs> goodness me it, it doesn't get any better I think the point the point I wanted to make was that this had I, I bet very few readers were aware this had ever happened and again it's because she was a woman so I just wanted to bring that to people's attention all this you know Cook rightly got the plaudits but, but Bakewell probably deserves them now 40 years on 50 years on very interesting little um story you pulled up about india playing england in the cricket and the india fans all uh, at the ground cheering for india and then when the match was over the uh, the football world cup match featuring england flashed up on the screen and they all started barracking for england um <laughs> and uh, this idea you know whoever who was it who came up with the test about uh, oh, who do they yeah the tevit yeah. test of who they barrack for and all the rest of it and uh, more complicated than that as, as you pointed out extremely complicated uh, it was really heartening i remember finishing off my match report that night and there was a sea of blue shirts and they they were hanging around like Indian fans do just to try and get a selfie or whatever jumping up and down the big screen the penalty shootout comes on England win and and I was like my goodness they're going berserk for this so it just you know forget the Tebbit test forget all these these black and white views of of national identity this was this was real life and complexity happening in front of me and I thought it was quite heartwarming last but not least in the editor's note section you have a bit of a shout out to the obituaries at the back of the book with all its quirks always one of the most enjoyable parts of the Wisdom Almanac 
And they, they were your notes. So what, what we do, we'll go through some other parts of the book. Part one, notwithstanding your notes, is like the comment section, the essays, where you commission some of the best writers in the world to have a pretty decent frolic. I mean, having been fortunate, Jeff and I, having written for the Almanac, he gave us quite a lot of latitude and, and, and let us have some fun with it. And um, there's been some brilliant pieces this year, as you'd expect. Uh, Shil Berry, a, a former editor of the Almanac, writing about Alistair Cook's final day in test cricket and going back in time, um, you went and listed all of the mentions that Cook had had in the Almanac, and it goes all the way back to 2000 as a 14-year-old boy. That must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, Richard Whitehead, our assistant editor, did that, and I just said, look, just go and find some stuff we've said. Then maybe we may have embarrassed ourselves at some point, said this boat will never scrape together a run, but fortunately, I think we got most of it right. And I mean, Shield was very nice also on the um, the farewells, Oval being the home of farewells, yeah, yeah. and Jack Hobbs, I think the, the, the first proper farewell was um, the Australians led by Bill Woodfull, gave three cheers to Jack Hobbs as a photo in the Wisden actually they're taking their caps off and Hobbs didn't want to shake Woodfull's hand because he thought it would look immodest and showing showing off to the crowd and I thought wow how times have changed but then I thought <laughs> hang on Cook Cook's a bit like that as well and when he got his about 15th standing ovation at the Oval he actually started to calm the crowd down mm. he wanted to get on with the game and I thought somewhere in between there we've gone sort of we've peaked and we've come down again so it, it, yeah Shield did that very nicely. It's a very moving essay from Walid Khan, who's trying to make his way as a cricketer after being shot multiple times at the school in Peshawar, where there was a, a horrendous terrorist attack uh, going back a few years now, where 149 people were killed, um, mostly mostly kids, you know, at, at the school. And the way that he spoke about having to you know, rebuild his body, but also rebuild his mind to be able to and, and using cricket as the fuel to push him through that to give him the impetus to say i want to be able to bowl again i want to be able to bat again yeah it's incredible cricket was his therapy but it's a it, it was a way that you can use your passion to reconstruct your life both physically and mentally and incredibly brave guy he's coming to the dinner tonight actually oh, wow. um, i spoke to him for that piece and just the kind of not the matter of factness he still gets involved with his experience but the, the way he's been able to move on from it was just was just mind-blowing really he's He's only 16 now, but he, he talks like someone who's, who's twice that age. And, you know, I, I wish him all the very best of luck in his life. Uh, Gideon Haig uh, wrote your longer sandpaper piece. Obviously, he'd uh, written it, a book about it uh, while he probably was writing your essay as well, sort of unpacking how we got here. One of those definitive accounts, of course, Jeff wrote one too, but Gideon's kind of goes into the history of it all um, as ever. Um, a, a fantastic person to read in the book. When I first got the job, I was like, I can't commission the same person for consecutive years in the front of the book, but Gideon <laughs> seems to be the guy who pops up every year. He, um, yes, he, he's probably the, the person you want to hear on any Australian, um, mm. with respect to you guys, um, on any Australian issue, really. And he, he sometimes takes an administrative stance on things. So he was quite strong on this piece about how the, uh, the executive had fallen apart as a res- after they tried to put all the blame on the players. Finally, the, the chickens came home to roost for the for the men in suits. So he said there was a degree of, I mean, it was, you mentioned hubris nemesis earlier. Gideon uses that line too, and talking about the Aussies celebrating on the podium, the four yeah. nil in early twenty eighteen, and then not long after, it's all gone wrong. So I suppose sort of a real life lesson there. Jonathan Liu took uh, an unusual turn, which is pretty usual for him, and realised that it was 250 years since the first century had been recorded, which in itself is hilarious, uh, having a 250th anniversary of 100, but, <laughs> but that hundreds weren't a thing before then, they, they weren't, uh, weren't thought about in that way. Amazing, I, mean, I think it was a chap called John Minsell who notched 107 runs for the Duke of Norfolk's 11 against Rotham on some county estate somewhere, <laughs> no one mentioned it in the papers, and Jonathan's theory was, look... 
the whole idea of counting is arbitrary anyway. We use base 10, but the Babylonians use base 60 and the Mayans use base 20. I mean, <laughs> it could be that six, 60, if we played the Babylonians played cricket, then 60 could have been the big number and 120 mm. would have been the one where you start dancing around yeah. the ground and so on. So, There'd be a whole lot of nervous 59s. Exactly, <laughs> the, nervous, yeah, the nervous 119s and so on. And then the whole, he gets into Ramprakash's pursuit of 100, mm. 100s and Tendulkar's pursuit of 100 international 100s and basically says, hasn't, hasn't this all gone a bit far? But yeah, brilliant entertaining read from Jonathan as you'd expect yeah I, I loved reading that this morning when I picked up the book and I mean you know obviously a great writer and a friend of the show but it, it, it's a cracker uh, Raph Nicholson writes about Netta Reinberg's diary so that was the first England post-war women's tour of Australia in 48-49 another great read which he serialised during the week so it's available online at the moment um, a rollicking ride that tour seemed to be amazing I, I went to Raph and said um, what is the best women's cricket story that's never been told and she went away and thought about it she came back with look I've got hold of the Netta Reinberg diaries and she told me about it I was this is perfect I mean what you get from Netta Reinberg who managed that tour 48-49 to Australia and New Zealand is the kind of last embers of post-war imperialism Suez hasn't happened yet Britain still thinks of itself as a world player so Netta Reinberg could go to Australia and lecture them on playing the game in the right way none of this winning nonsense and people, she said, were coming up to her in the street and thanking them for Britain's effort during the war. It was a, a little glimpse into another <laughs> world which would not be possible now, thank goodness. I'm going to hit fast forward and, and breeze through a few pieces which I um, w- was reticent to do, but I'm mindful that you're a very busy man. Uh, John Hotton spoke to Mick Hunt, who's been the groundsman at Lords for about a million years, who retired last year, which, which is a lot of fun. Um, Tim DeLisle, another one of your former editors, listing 11 reasons why someone might be motivated to do well as a cricketer. Um, Peter Oborn, who knows more about Pakistan cricket than most, having, of course, written your book of the year four years ago I think it was Winter Tiger Um, uh, that was uh, he wrote about Imran Khan becoming um, the Prime Minister and and how cricket prepared him for the huge challenges he has ahead and he's the sixth former first class player to become a Prime Minister you also have a breakout in the Almanac which is very niche and very good for (laughs) that that Venn diagram crossover a lot of people listen to our podcast The Political Hacks as well so I'm sure they'll like that Uh, and then what I will ask you about is Rob Smart's piece about the 1979 World Cup the Ugly Duckling World Cup, I think. I feel as though when people talk about World Cups, we, we write that one off because it was slow and boring and everybody kind of knew what was probably going to happen. But at the same time, and I, I might have discounted this a bit, the one that England may have won when you consider the, the, op- the opportunities they had in that final. Yeah, I mean, it, it was 40 years on from the last time England reached a home World Cup final, so it was a bit of a peg for it. Rob had written a brilliant piece that I'd read on Eurosport website about the 1998 Football World yeah, Cup. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And I read. thought, I want him to do this for cricket. What can I get him to do it on? I thought, 79 World Cup. Because as you say, look, brilliant boycott. I had 139 in 38 overs or something, 129 in 38 overs in the final. Yeah. Well, England were chasing 280. And one of the amazing details of that story is they're in the, they have tea in those days in the One Day International. They go in at the tea break <laughs> and they say, are we, are we doing this right? Should we put our foot down? And Ian Botham, of all people, says, no, no, keep going. Just steady. She goes, you'll be fine. And there was also a story that Clive Lloyd deliberately dropped boycott. Now, he, did not, he denies that. He said, why, why would I do that? But, of course, the moment those two get out, the whole thing collapses in a heap. It's 129 with that loss. It's 191 all out. Garner takes five for 38. They can't pick his hand from the top of the sight screen in the dark. There are five ducks in the bottom set. It's a complete shambles. And in the end, you go back to Viv Richards, 138, and yeah. Collis King's 80-odd, uh, when they batted in a way that you would expect 
today, whereas Brilliant and Boycott were very much a 1970s opening pair. When I think of that World Cup, I actually think of Boycott, but not batting. It's him taking two Australian wickets, bowling in a hat. That's right. I don't know. You know, the things you remember, right, or that have seen on YouTube. Again, I'm going to skip through a few more here. Uh, there's a great piece that Richard Hobson wrote about post-war cricket uh, in 1919 when first-class cricket resumed. Uh, a lovely little short piece about the, the making of a, of a ticket to come to Lords. I thought that was gorgeous. A more important meaty piece about the Windrush generation and, and of course, that's been in the news over the last 12 months, but how they were so important to cricket in this country. The riding competition winner was Nick Campion, writing about the father and son bond the game can bring. Uh, Miles Drup's hilarious speech from the dinner we're going to tonight from 2018. You have a, an extract or a, a transcript thing, actually, of that yeah. speech which um, yeah. was a, a great... I'm not sure who your guest speaker is tonight, but they've got a fairly big bar to, to reach uh, Miles uh, after the job he did last year. And that kind of completes the essays per se, and we get into to the, the player prizes. Uh, Smriti Mandana, Jeff, we've been talking about her for, I don't know, five years, and it feels as though she is uh, following on from Bathali Raj, who's of course had this honour in the past. Uh, she is now the, the, so much on, on what will happen when it comes to Indian women's cricket depends on this player, and, and she's been recognised as the, the leading player for, for 2019. Yeah, and we have to make the distinction because you have the leading cricketers in the world, of which there's one man and one woman, yes. and, and players can win that multiple times, and then there are the five cricketers of the year, which is based around the England summer and which can only be won once. So if you uh, <laughs> were confused good. before, you won't be now. And yes, Mridi Mandana seems she, she she looks destined for this. Uh, even you know going well the 2017 World Cup, the, just how smooth she looked when she destroyed England in that opening game in the World Cup. It was you know you thought here is here is the talent that is about to take off, and the way she took off this last year in the T20 form as well, which where she'd been a little bit less able to you know she was more a 50 over player needed a bit of time, but she's developed that aggression and power to a game now and can hit sixes at will. Virat Kohli's gone three times in a row now, Lawrence. He's the first cricketer... Well, when this award came in in 2003, Kohli is the, the first player to win it three times, and on the trot, no less. And um, he's obviously a wisdom, one of the wisdom five this year, but um, you made the point before, he's now reached that stage where it's irrefutable. He's the most important cricketer on the planet. Yeah, and it's got to the point also where you think who's going to beat him in the next three or four years, really. It's going to take a hell of an effort. You just can't see him failing. He doesn't seem to know how to fail. He scores 100 not out every run chase. Um, <laughs> an, an absolute phenomenon. I mean, he is, the, he is the modern Bradman, really. And I think he boosted his test credentials as well. That point that you made earlier where Smith was a bit ahead of him as a test batsman, pretty much around the time Smith got booted, uh, Coley suddenly started racking up test hundreds faster than ever before. He made, what, four doubles in, in a year. Um, he's up in the mid-20s now in terms of test hundreds as well as in the 40s with his one-day hundreds. So, you know, he could breeze past the 100 hundreds with a lot less of the angst yeah. than, with a than, than Sachin Tendulkar had. Yeah. And I think he's more driven in a way than Tendulkar. There's a sort of fire that burns in Kohli and it, it shows no sign of going out, unfortunately, for opposition bowlers. The old political hack in me, I heard you say then, he's the modern Bradman and that is going to be a headline somewhere. We're going to, we're going to send <laughs> this podcast to every one of our Indian colleagues Excellent. and ensure it's the Of course, case. you can't quite compare different eras, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> They'll take you out of context and we won't care. Five cricketers of the year. When I was thinking about it, I thought I had six into five. So I thought Muhammad Abbas was the one that I was in my own mind thinking, you know, given the wickets he took for Leicestershire and being player of the series in the England-Pakistan series, he might just get there. That, how close was he? Uh, yeah. and, and when did you make the call on those, on those last five? He was close. Uh, I make them kind of about within a fortnight at the end of the season. I mean, the, the, Abbas was brilliant last year. My only issue when you're talking about 
getting it down to five was that he took Division Two wickets mm. in a bowler-friendly summer. Right. So that to me wasn't quite as impressive as say Rory Burns scoring thirteen hundred runs for, in Division One, leading his team to county championship. Morning Morkel came close as well, but oh, again, yeah. bowler summer. So you've got to always take these things into consideration. But look, it's 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 the great wisdom pub debate, and <laughs> I, I'm very surprised if anyone ever agrees at all five. No, that's right. Although I think there was a, this year it was less fired up than than usual. Tammy Beaumont, one who was maybe unlucky to miss out last year but got in this year and uh, Adam wrote the piece on her, which of course he can't say because he'd be too modest to do that. Well, it was, it was a privilege to be asked to do it and um, I loved her telling me about the, uh, the, the when she walked up after being player of the World Cup in 2017 and walked up to the chairs in the very top deck of his grandstand at, uh, at the members here and, uh, and, um, and took a photo of the bench where she'd been in tears a couple of years earlier when she'd been dropped from the England side and sent it to Carl Crow, who was the former assistant coach in the England side and that was the moment that she kind of finally realised what this huge moment in her life was and, and she was most forthcoming so thanks to Tammy and congratulations she joins Anya Shrubsoul, Nat Siver and Heather Knight from the England women's side to be gonged as Wisden 5 cricketers in the last couple of years Lawrence um, it feels as though now that um, you know that there is a, it's not it's not a novelty that there's a woman in in the five, whereas it may have been in, in years gone by. Yeah, I hope that I hope that's the thing that people take out this year. There hasn't been such a reaction to perhaps because there were there were three last year. Um, I mean, as, as Jeff said, Tammy could have won it last year. She was a leading run yeah. scorer, for goodness sake, in a tournament that England won. But I just felt that three others had a greater claim. And Sarah Taylor got close as well last year. I could have named five women last year, and I could have looked myself <laughs> in the mirror and said, "This is not a gimmick." I know people would have said it was a gimmick, yeah. but it, it, but it wouldn't have been. Um, and so I, I just hope. I mean, I, I never want a woman to be a, a token pick. That would be an insult to all women cricketers. But uh, the last four have not been, and that's that's a great thing for the women's game. Joss Butler has been such a cause of excitement for, well, for anybody, not just for England supporters, but particularly bringing in, you know, writing that mantra of fuck it on his cricket bat. Like, just <laughs> just do it. Whatever it is, just go full throttle. Um, and the flexibility that he's given that England team with the fact that he can do anything in the middle order. Total superstar, isn't he? And that, that 150 off 70 odd balls in the West Indies recently was mm. just you know, quintessential Joss. You just sometimes you, you see him batting like that and think, why doesn't he do it all the time? Um, he, he arguably the cleanest striker consistently in the in the world at the moment. Andre Russell might might argue otherwise, but he's just doing white ball at the moment. But yeah, Joss is the man to watch. Yeah, what a golden summer that hundred he made in the one day at Old Trafford. Um, you know, different kind of innings as Absolutely. well, and and that fucking anecdote. I think Tim Delisle is one of the few people who can get away with putting that in his first line. So I did enjoy that. <laughs> Phil Walker wrote about Rory Burns, who had a an epic season as the captain of Surrey got himself into the test side. Of course, captaining the Division One champions in the in the uh, in their championship year. Sam Curran. Now he that piece was written by Simon Wilde. That would have been the one for me. Like that's the that's the one that does he get there this year, or do you feel as though you could have made the assessment that he's going to get there eventually? He's twenty one years old, but you, you went with him, and uh, and uh, and of course he had such a wonderful series against India. Well, look, one of the criteria is impact on the previous English summer. Yep. So you can't start thinking about what happens if he has a better summer in five years' time. You don't always win Wisden Cricket of the Year in your best summer. That's just the quirk of the award. Yep. So if Curran, without Curran, England would probably have lost to India. They won four one, but they could have lost three two. The counter attacking fifties at Edgbaston and Southampton, both of which England won by double figure mm. run margins so you know whatever becomes of Curran I mean this isn't a predictor of greatness he, uh, though he took a hat trick in the IPL the other day 800,000 was a you know interesting valuation for him at the IPL he may not take 100 test wickets you never know the fact is he had a telling impact last summer and of course Virat Kohli rounding out the five who we've discussed Tunku Varadarajan wrote that essay a US writer yeah couldn't ignore Kohli 
had a nightmare in 2014 in England. Anderson had him on toast and then came, comes back four years later, gets dropped on 21 in the first test off Anderson, but doesn't get out to him all series and scores 593 runs. Ends <laughs> with a golden duck, by the way, but nevertheless, yeah. more than twice as many runs as anyone in the series. And I mean, just said everything about the guy. Take a big deep breath. That's the end of part one. Trust me, we're not going to do all 1,536 pages across <laughs> nine sections, but we are going to take a quick breather on the final word. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. The Final Word, of course, brought to you by Kookaburra Cricket. If it ain't Cooker, Jeff, it ain't cricket. And we're, gonna, we're, we're messing with the space-time continuum. We, we're, of course, talking to Lawrence Booth in the main body of the show. But here we are, 24 hours later. We're still at Lords, and we're watching one of Kookaburra's own bowl in the middle of headquarters. Glenn Maxwell, he's bowling his 20th over. He has one for 36 for Lancashire on Lancashire debut and he just went through to defence of John Simpson to get in the book as well. Time, space. They have, <laughs> we have torn a hole. We're, we've never left Lords. He's bowling here, Maxwell, to young Max Holden who's defending behind square no run. This is actually happening, by the way. We're not just making this up. No, as, actually... we ha- as we happen to be recording this pod, <laughs> we didn't plan it this way. No. But he's done a power of work today. He's got through a huge stack of overs. Yeah, 19.2 overs. Uh, he's pretty high-profile game too. James Anderson's playing for Lancashire. Graham Onions is also in the attack, another England international. Owen Morgan is uh, in the Middlesex side, as is Sam Robson that played Test cricket. So, yeah, it's a pretty decent lineup. And, and the bloke that Max Hortis went through, Simpson's quite a decent player as well. So, bowling with a, a slip and a short leg, as you would. I'd have all the men around the bat for Maxwell. So, Kookaburra's own, of course, Glenn Maxwell. And he, when he bats, um, when he bats he's out there with tomorrow, the he'll be out there with the Blaze. I was hoping that Lancashire would opt to bat today, but they sent Middlesex in. But it means I'm definitely going to come back tomorrow. There's no excuse given. We're only up the road, Jeff, so one way or the other we'll see Glenn Maxwell bat this week. Just another forward defensive. They're treating him very respectfully. They know he was bowling at the wrong end earlier, but he switched around and, and found success. Coming in again, right arm over. And oh, jeez. Being whipped away straight into short leg. That was a put down, I fancy. He nearly killed his short leg ball. earlier. Before lunch, he bowled a half tracker and the short leg got absolutely creamed in the guts. Oof. So I can understand why he wasn't necessarily on his toes there, but there was an inside edge located. So not far away, Maxwell from taking. Um, this is quite fun. We, we should we should commentate the cricket one day, Jeff. <laughs> Maybe on your couch or something like that. Yeah, Maxwell goes that. again. This time Harris pushing. Maxwell does the work in his follow-through, no run. I wonder if we could just do a podcast that's just entirely <laughs> us commentating a county match, but a week later by the, by the time we put it out. Well, I'm sure this will mean that we don't get pings for breaching the rights, which are, of course, are held by the, the host broadcaster and the ECB. But, you know, whatever. I, I 206 for 6 is the score for Middlesex. I think we can get away with five deliveries um, <laughs> for something that'll be done about three days uh, after the fact. But, uh, yeah, as you say, Kookaburra and a lot of their players getting around in the county cricket scene as well. They are. I mean, this summer is a big year for Australians playing county cricket. I mean, not all of these are coming out, but I'm sure Usman Khawaja will be with his kahuna at one stage. Did you see that Shane Warne left Usman Khawaja out of his World Cup squad during the week? Shane Warne has a lot of influence, clearly, but I'm I'm sure that Darcy Short won't get in the squad ahead of a bloke who's made a mountain of runs runs in the last last couple of series. Marcus Harris with the Ghost, he'll be here one way or the other. I'm sure Australia initially, probably, but almost certainly playing the test. Nicole Bolton will be here for the 
the women's ashes. Peter Hanscom with the surge. He'll probably get a Guernsey in the World Cup. Mitchell Stark will be here. Sophie Molyneux will be here as well in the women's ashes. And with the blaze, we already mentioned Glenn Maxwell, Rachel Haynes, uh, the Australian vice captain, and Josh Hazelwood. I, I wonder whether Hazelwood will feature in the World Cup. He did a podcast interview during the week, and I don't think he entirely knows whether he'll be here, but he certainly is a player they can depend on in a big tournament, given that he is a World Cup champion from 2015. Yeah, I just wonder if he's maybe uh, being that metronomic type of bowler goes against you in the 50-over format. You know, if you're constantly hitting that nice length, then players can back away and, and make room and try to hit you off that length. So it's whether he's got the variety. Team Kookaburra, kookaburra.biz. You basically, you register, you put your name in the draw, any number of different bits of kit you can get for free uh, if you're pulled out of the barrel, so to speak. So thanks for Kookaburra for running that promotion through the England summer as well. Kookaburra.biz to join Team Kookaburra. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. Jeff, while we're talking the England summer on this stunning spring afternoon at headquarters, it it's is gorgeous, absolutely it? perfect. Not a cloud in the sky being the first day of professional cricket here for the summer. There are a lot of people in. They've been enjoying the sunshine in the in the members as well this morning. Um, as we see Jimmy Anderson actually bowling right here. He's got two for 37. Do you know Jimmy Anderson? Make that three for 37. What a snaffle in the gully. It wasn't Maxwell. But whoever's wearing number 12 has moved a long way to his left. That's the end of Holden. Maxwell, of course, wearing 32, the famous 32. A lot of great lengths players have uh, <laughs> been through that 32 jersey. I, I won't name any of them. I could, but I won't. Jeff, you'll like this. James Anderson now has 923 first-class wickets. And wow. I was having a chat to our colleague Paul Edwards in the press box about this this morning, that who the last Englishman to reach 1,000 first-class wickets was. And it was Robert Croft, who's not even English. He's Welsh. Oh. So, so you've got to go back to Andy Caddick before that. But Anderson could, in theory, if he plays seven county championship games before the test against Ireland, where they play a four-day test at Lords. Then five Ashes tests. That means he'll play 13 red ball games this summer, 80 wickets in 13 games. It's a big task, but it's possible that... It's possible. Can you imagine Anderson winning the Ashes at the Oval with his final wicket in professional cricket being his thousandth? There'd be, there'd be some poetry to that. I, I don't it's think a long it's, way to go. I don't think it's going to be his final test. I, 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 don't, I think it's just going to keep rolling on. He's, uh, well, he could. He's fit enough. He's, he's bowling well enough. He's, and he likes playing cricket, and he doesn't have much else to do. He's like, oh, I'd be a bit bored. I don't really have anything <laughs> else on. Also in the Shires... Uh, from an Australian perspective, Manus Labuschagne. Mm. First time of asking for, for Glamorgan out at Cardiff. He's gone and made 100. That's a, I wonder if Justin Lang is awake. Do you reckon he, or is he asleep having great dreams back home? Or? Well, if, if, he's, if his mate Manus is batting, his little, his, yeah. his little fella Manus is batting, I suspect he's, he's across the details of that. <laughs> He'll be bombarded with SMSs. It's the middle of the night in Australia. Do, 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 do you think he's up? Yeah, well, what they, I think I heard, what was it, Jared Waitley said the other week, you know, when, when Australia is sleeping, Shane Watson's making runs somewhere. But in this case, <laughs> it was Lab of Shane. Uh, Peter Siddle took a couple of wickets uh, for Essex. While you sleep, I train. While you sleep, While you sleep <laughs> I make runs. <laughs> Both of Siddle's wickets were test players, uh, Mark Stoneman and Ollie Pope. Mm. We have Cameron Bancroft, the new captain of Durham, which we dealt with in last week's final word. He made 33 off 159 balls. He's on the epic go slow <laughs> of late. He's like, <laughs> nah, not interested in runs, just interested in balls. So there are plenty of Australians out here at the moment, as it will be for the duration of the summer. Um, Glenn Maxwell, one of those in front of us here, which has been a lot of fun. And Jeff, um, thanks to Kookaburra, but also thanks to our patron subscribers who've been brilliant. A lot of them have been engaging with us on Twitter and on Facebook and so on, and we've had a ball, really, yeah. uh, getting to the bottom of the numerology of the donations or the contributions, rather, and last week there were some ones that stumped us, which we should deal with first. This is the Nerd Pledge game, where yes. people are coming through with different numbers rather than saying, you know, $2, they're saying 213 and then challenging us to work out what that means. 
a couple that stumped us. 7.30, we were not sure about at one stage, but I worked it out a couple of hours after we recorded and then a bunch of people came through as well. It's got to be Moorer Leaves 7 for 30 in, I think it was the Coca-Cola something, something <laughs> international cup against India and it was in the early 2000s, but that, that ended up being his best one-day figures. Within about... 20 minutes of that podcast going live. I reckon last week we had about 20 tweets telling us that. So yeah. good work on that. Please keep <laughs> us to account. Hold us to account. There was another number Two, last 271 week, 271. Oh, this a, was a corker. We had a couple of people come through. I think Kiwi Kelly and Hypercourse on Twitter figured this one out. <laughs> uh, this is the highest list A women's score. Now, we didn't get into domestic cricket on the men's or women's side in looking for the numbers. Um, otherwise, we might have worked that one out. But what I like particularly is that it's Tripali Wirikotti, who's a specialist bowler, basically, for the Sri Lankan national side. She bats. She's, she's probably an 8 rather than an 11. Mm-hmm. You know, can can hit, um, has a good cover drive but I wouldn't have thought she had a double 100 in her. It turns out she did, uh, 271 mm. smashing it all around the place in the And Shirley that's kind of in keeping. We would have had comp. two bowlers who had made 250 plus in the pledges last week because of course Wazzy Macram was one of, the, yeah. one of the donations last week. So initially some thanks to people who've come through with the normal pledges. So this is on the Patreon page where you can uh, support a couple of bucks for an episode and give us a few coins in the jar to help keep things going and, and God, just such wonderful people that come through. We've had 14 new people sign up. William Henderson, don't know William, but I think I reckon William looks great in a hat. Mm. I feel like he's the kind of guy who would. Dominic Davis came through. Very good at his 12 times tables. Really? Yes. Can nail the 144. 12, 12 144. Knows it. Knows it off the top of his head. That's lovely. Andrew Wadsworth, he's a, he's a wonderful swing dancer. All that action in the hips is fluid. <laughs> it's fluid. It's Hips don't lie. Shakira told me that. That's right. Tom Chalkley came through for us. Five-night carryover champ on Sale of the Century. Is that right? Little known fact. Wow. Tom Chalkley, the, uh, the, the chalkboard. Mm. Chalked up another one. Uh, Kazan Davies, uh, uh, just a great name, Kazan. Yeah. But what I like particularly, we had a couple come through, Sorby and Mrs. Sorby. Separate pledges. So there's a couple out there who are having romantic candlelit dinners, putting on an episode of The Final Word and just letting the romance flow. That is so nice. There was a romance special of Tailenders a couple of weeks ago and that thought has crossed my mind, although they've very much nailed the market there. But um, if you are listening to this with your beloved, uh, well, I, I hope this is doing what it should be doing. Give them a kiss from me and give them a kiss from Adam. Yes. And then give them a kiss from you and then <laughs> see where it takes you. <laughs> Now, Who else? it's time for a round of Nerd Pledge. Let's do it. This is where we get the numbers in. The first couple, I think, are probably accidental uh, because we've got two that have come through at 149. Alex McLaren, a friend of the show on Twitter. He is indeed. And, and James Chappell, a teammate of mine at the Dan O'Connell, a former captain, skippered the team to a premiership. Well, of course, 149 being the score that Adam Gilchrist made at Hobart. In 99, so it's entirely possible that they both just really enjoyed that innings. It was Maybe they were just too massive. I, I was thinking they might have done something in Australian dollars that got turned into USD or something, because that, that seems to line up about right. And he was also, he was also <laughs> stitched up there, Gilchrist Slays. I think it was I think it was Wazim Akram through cover. It goes to the rope, but they've already crossed and passed the one run they needed for victory, so if Gilchrist didn't make it to 150. He would have been 152 not. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's, okay. that's, that's how okay. I recall it. Well, you can't really claim to be stiff in that game, especially since no. Justin Langer was out yes. for about 20 Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and not given. Elite. Now, a pledge come through from, I should say, we had a pledge come through, not that I'm mixing up my tenses here, from the History of the Netherlands podcast, which I love. Big big fan of the History of the Netherlands podcast. If you want to find out what William of Orange was up to um, <laughs> or anything about merchant shipping in the 1600s. Uh, I, I won't say what I said off air, but the, yes. The, <laughs> the, big, the big part of the Schleifen plan in World War I. Uh, for instance, the History of the Netherlands has come through with 137. 
obvious one this one oh, obviously this is the world cup of 2007 when the netherlands chased down scotland's 136 and, and won the game passing it with 137 and, and of course that well, was... a famous day a famous day for netherlands cricket um getting notching that big win on the on the world stage and who else but to... tendo ryan tenderscarter the the greatest record in in limited overs history his average 67 made 500s in in 32 games for the netherlands so oh, of course it's that ryan at tendulkaskata yeah. was calling him around the 2011 <laughs> World Cup when he was just making ton after ton. His record's about um, 100 every six innings, which is the best in the history of the game, aside from Vera Coley. Bernard Sayer has, uh, has come through. Hello, with, Bernard. Well, he initially just went at a flat $2 amount, but then he's bumped it up to a 216. 216, an obvious one for me. Clary Grimmett. Oh, of course. Clary Grimmett's tally of test wickets. He was the first to get to the 200 mark. He blazed his way there in about 30 odd games. Just ridiculous record. He took wickets faster than. He's, he's like 5.996 or something wickets per match. Good bowlers would, might be about four wickets a test. He's basically six wickets a test. Yeah, bowling in a way that it doesn't look like the sort of guy that would have dominated to the extent that he did. Uh, Sam Townsend has come through with a pledge of 204. Adam Gilchrist again. He's had two goes. Adam Gilchrist at Joburg in in 2002 when he smashed up the South Africans. The fastest ever double hundred for Adam Gilchrist at the time. (laughs) Later beaten by Nathan Astle (laughs) of all people. (laughs) Like perhaps in the same week or month as well, I reckon. It was within about six months. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nathan Astle just in a desperate doomed cause in New Zealand one day was like, I guess I'll just smash everything and somehow got to 200 off about 150 balls. Gilchrist was 204 off 213. And now the fastest 200 in Test cricket is Ben Stokes, and that came up last mm. week as 258. So this is, all, this is all very beautiful. Oh. The numerology, I mean, uh, it's, it's, um, some people really believe in this. So it's, um, it's I remember all... Susan Lay, who was briefly a minister in the uh, current government, she put the extra well, S in her name. minister who got sacked for dodgy stuff with an apartment on the Gold Coast? Quite possibly. I can't recall why she got sacked, but she's not in the ministry anymore. I reckon, she's the one, she, I reckon she was buying um, real estate on taxpayer-funded trips. She was taking trips to the Gold Coast to see a real estate broker. Just an ideas woman really yeah. for doing that but the, the, the um, she added an extra letter to her name due to numerology she added she added the second S I think really? it was I, I think okay. I'm right in saying that or, or, or it's an elaborate lie made up in Canberra wasn't, wasn't but it, I think it's true wasn't that the name of that chain store uh, that women's clothing store in the 90s it was like this goes with this that this goes with it's that <laughs> We're really dating ourselves there, Jeffrey. Which is what she said when she got to the goal. She said, no, no, I was there for a work thing and I just decided to buy an apartment while I was there. Um, just casually, I happened this to This goes notice, with that. This goes with that, you know, I, uh, meeting constituents and just buying a flat. <laughs> so We are into the election season, so expect more of this crossover in the next six weeks. Our colleague, Tristan Lavalette, has come through. Hello, Tristan. Lovely work, he wrote, Tristan. I'm going to say, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like indoor cricket because, you know, hmm. it's that kind of crew, I reckon. I reckon you've probably played your fair share. Tristan wrote the definitive history of indoor cricket in Australia for the Cricket Monthly a couple of years ago, mm. and it's a rollicking read. I, I, I highly recommend it. Thank you, Tristan. Yeah. And weirdly enough, he wrote all of it outdoors. Like he was outside <laughs> for the whole time. It was weird. But his figure that he's put up is 291. I reckon this one's fairly clear to us because Nathan, Lyon, McDermott. Nathan Lyon went past it recently. Yes, Craig McDermott, 291. And the final one is Michal Maguire, 517. 517 brings up horrible, horrible memories, I reckon, for both of us. <laughs> yes, it does. Alistair Cook, Andrew Strauss and uh, Jonathan Trott having their way with Australia. Uh, I remember being there that day. I flew up from Melbourne to Brisbane first thing the Sunday morning and, and they batted all day. It was brutal. Yeah, um, and it was and the brilliant. second innings. It, it was a point of a test match. It was, it was the first Ashes test in uh, that series they ended up winning in 2010-11. But it seemed like it was going to be a good test. You know, They, they batted quite well in the first innings and then Peter Siddall took six for took a hat 
trick. It was yep. his birthday. He got the got the hat trick wicket with a DRS referral. Yep. I reckon. Yep. No, I think it was. Ch- I reckon the third wicket was challenged, and so he got to celebrate the hat trick twice. That's right. It was Stuart Broad, wasn't it? It was a leg before hit him on the toe, yep. and they all went up and had the celebration. Then had to wait for the review. Then had it again. There's that Mark Taylor Mark bit Taylor. of commentary yeah. on Peter Siddle on his birthday. <laughs> so five seventeen was that one. If you do want to get involved with this ridiculous uh, hobby that we now have, uh, please do so. Jump on the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the final word. So what that means is it's a little way that people can come and financially subscribe to the podcast. Yep. Totally voluntary. We'll keep putting stuff out for free regardless um, but we will put out a few extras on the patron page as well that'll be patron only i'm currently in the process of commissioning a, a haunting piano piece to be my backing for the sean marsh uh, poem which i'm going to release on the patron page soon i'm also going to put a recording up i think from my book launch the other week yep. um, greg baum making a toast there and that was a, a nice moment so i thought i'll put that up on the patron page if people are interested to listen so there'll be some bits and extras going up there and it just means you can sign up to help the pod and, and keep us going which is nice and if you can't or don't want to you don't have to it's uh, it's no pressure it's so. all good and, and, if, and if you are enjoying the show a lot of people have been supporting us on itunes and that helps too the more people that hear the pod the, the easier it is for us to keep this ticking over each week so itunes review rate and you know give us five stars or we want to contribute a few words that that does make a massive difference with the algorithm but thanks to everyone who signed up on patreon patreon.com slash the final word we're up to about 100 20 subscribers what do we do when we hit 150 what's well adam gilchrist didn't hit 150 no, <laughs> no, exactly. no. let's park that let's uh, I'll take that question on notice mm-hmm. um and uh, thank one more time kookaburra for being such great supporters of the final word if it ain't cooker it ain't cricket and that's probably enough from us from now in the future let's go back in time 24 hours to the other side of lords to the pavilion and continue our conversation with wisdom editor lawrence booth <laughs> Hello, I'm Jared Waitley. Join us on the Final Word podcast. It's the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, joined by Wisdom Almanac editor Lawrence Booth. Part two, books. This was always going to be an area we were going to look at very closely this year, Jeff. The, the, <laughs> the Tanya Aldred, the whole section about books is, is a lot of fun. She talks about a preposterous tale of drinking and shagging in the first part, which could be nothing other than Derek Pringle's fantastic, fantastic autobiography <laughs> from last year. If you've not read Dell's book, um, somehow find it, source it. I'll send it to you. It's so good. Barat, we've had Brat on the show to talk about Indian cricket before. He gets a mention about his biography on Dhoni last year. The Dhoni touch. The Dhoni touch. You and um, me, baby, ain't nothing but mouth. Simon Wilde wrote the biography of England cricket last year again, so thorough. Um, Gideon's book gets a run as does Nathan Lehman's quite lovely novel uh, The Test which I really enjoyed last year there's James Taylor's autobiography in there cut short and then what a great dun, title dun, dun, what, a, what a great title though cut a, short for a, yeah, for a cricketer was, famous for being that four foot eight yeah yeah it, it definitely worked and then it all culminated in uh, the, the victor Jeff Lemon with Steve Smith's men. Tanya said it was uh, a different animal to the type of book that Gideon wrote, which I think a lot of people have observed. Um, it was more emotional and more soulful. Um, Jeff is touched by a golden pen and an eye for detail. Um, she envisages you scratching your poetic curls, Jeff. It, it, it was a lovely <laughs> review in itself. The piece about the review was really nice too. Lawrence, what is the deliberative process that the, the panel goes through before they finally decide on a book and, and what stood Jeff out? The winner is chosen by the reviewer. It's purely and simply. So oh, I thought it was a panel. It's, no, uh, um, it's, we, we put a lot of faith in the reviewer, so we have to commission the right person, obviously, each year, someone whose judgment we trust. Mm. Funnily enough, in the eight years I've done it, I've not read a piece and gone, you've chosen the wrong book, or you speak more warmly about a book that hasn't won than the one you've chosen. So it seems to work. And um, I read Jeff's book, and brilliant stuff. 
so a worthy winner and, T- and Tanya, yeah, she writes beautifully too, which helps. And she she's she observes things very well. You know, she um, I think Jeff and I had an email exchange where you, you said you were quite touched by the fact that she she seemed to read you attentively. The, to use the modern vernacular, I felt very seen. Um, <laughs> it, it's you you write something and you have an idea of how it's going to come across, but that doesn't mean it will come across that way. And so what she was able to do was communicate back to me that it had worked, that it, I had been able to do what I'd set out to do and that she'd received it in that way. So, yeah, that was that was a lovely thing. But also, you know, she's a writer I've admired long before I started working in cricket. So uh, to, to have her uh, speak about my work like that was... Was was very touching and, and validating. It should be. I mean, as a wisdom nerd, in my case, it's it's a massive deal, Jeff, and uh, I'm just thrilled that you've you've been able to uh, to to be recognised in this way. And um, you're in London for a week. There's other award ceremonies this week. Who knows? You might be in the running to win one of them as well. So. Uh, more power to you for that and yeah as you say a lovely piece to, to compliment your book then there's the photo of the year another section which a lot of people enjoy it's a joint uh, contest with the MCC that one uh, Phil Hilliard from uh, News Corp in Australia won that for the, the BBL photo of um, Moses Henriquez almost a, like an AFL style diving marker or goalkeeper parrying uh, a ball at the top corner of the net it was the front page of the paper it, it seemed a relatively obvious choice it was such a great snap yeah, and uh, what T20 done is, is lift the standard of field. We get more, uh, a lot more photos now from T20 games where people are throwing themselves doing relay catches on the boundary. It feeds into test cricket, but somehow with the, the colourful clothing, it adds an element of drama, and that was a superb snap. We'll brush over the environment section, but we will note there is one in part two. Uh, again, we've mentioned Tanya about six times. It says how much she's done for the book this year, I suppose. Um, but that's definitely worth reading in full, uh, especially um, those boards or those uh, countries that elected not to reply to Wisdom's um, uh, uh, requests for comment on that. Um, the other part of, of section two is the media section, uh, which Alex Massey wrote this year. Um, there's a, a lament about the demise of the county correspondent in there as well, immediately followed by a section about blogs and Twitter, which I thought was a nice little contrast there. And, uh, you know, we got a mention for the work that, that you particularly did in the UAE to put together the, the Renegade radio call <laughs> for for the Wisdom website. Yeah, that, that was kind of cool, actually. I mean, I've written a fair bit for the book the last few years, but to actually be mentioned in it for, for something other than, um, well, you know, it was, 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 a, was a nice touch. So uh, thanks, Alex, for giving us a Guernsey there. The retirement section, Steve James, go, Steve, Steve James rather, from, uh, from the Times goes through. Uh, it includes Ed Joyce. I'll just note that I spent a lot of time with Ed Joyce yesterday in Dublin interviewing him about his retirement, actually. So. Um, I, I, I was glad to, to happen upon that section in the retirement. So it's cricket in the courts. I don't, I'm not sure if I've seen that section before. Or I haven't noticed it before. But in addition to George Devell writing about Ben Stokes, I probably really uh, had the biggest laugh when you mentioned, uh, or when it was mentioned rather, that um, a drunk bloke got kicked out of Trent Bridge for throwing an advertising sign at two people. So p- apparently he was told not to come back to the cricket. Very British. <laughs> Just don't come back again. <laughs> We, yeah, cricket in the courts have been going for a few years now, and you, you right. pick up these weird little stories. Often, couple have sex on cricket square in little village in Sussex. Mm-hmm. Sorry, about that, all, yeah. all sorts of stories that don't fit anywhere else in the book, but always end up. <laughs> Is in that the court. called landing one on a good length? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, there's the laws with Fraser Stewart. Obituary He's been busy, before. hasn't he? <laughs> Fraser, old, old Fraser. This is Fraser's third mention on the pod in three weeks, I should add. I defended him staunchly last He's week. He's going to get royal. When Lawrence and others were going after him, I was there for... Are you joking? Um, the, the obituary section, there's been a bit the last few years in there which I've enjoyed, which is you reproduce an obituary from 100 years ago from the Great War, uh, presumably um, Captain Reginald Hands, who played Test Cricket for South Africa. He was gassed during the, the brutal spring offensive in 1918 and, and died 100 years ago. I guess that'll be the, the last of that, that series over the last five years, Lawrence. 
It will. I mean, we, we don't quite reproduce it. We we expand it essentially. Yep. I mean, the, the great story from from that obit was that uh, his I think it was his father was the mayor of Cape Town, and when news came through to him that his son had died, he he asked for a, a, a two minutes, a, th- a three minute silence. Initially, became a two minute silence. I think they thought three was too long, and that's where the two minute silence started. So, you know, a, a lovely story there told in told in the obituaries. Parts three to eight is just where all of the bulk comes in, all of the match reports <laughs> all around the world. The, the women's section's bigger than ever. All of the stats come through. And it, it sort of gives me a headache each year to realise just how much cricket has been paid. And, and even people like us, how little of it we've managed to follow because, God, we do our best, but there's a mountain of it out there. Might be a chance, Lawrence, to reflect on how, how you do that. I mean, I know you've got people that work on the book five months around the year collating 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 but um you know how intimidated are you when you start the process again knowing that you got the better part of 1600 pages to fill and the bulk of it is reports and scores it sounds like a boring answer but you just have to be organized like you just have to commission stuff when it happens you have to insist on the writer sitting deadlines no looking we, at neither we, of you we know all about <laughs> yeah, that sorry, sorry Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to have a sort of hard hard working team and matthew engel former editor used to say that editing wisdom was like pruning a tropical tropical garden you're always trying to keep in control of it sometimes it means you have to don't do full scorecards do short scores so that will save you five pages in a series if, you, if the t20s are coming in where are you going to cut elsewhere women's cricket's growing you, you have to keep you know when i got this job that i was told it has to be around 1500 pages there's more cricket than ever there are two more test teams they get extra coverage mm. so yeah it's that that is a constant constant job and um, probably one of the challenges that the, the readers don't quite see the uh, you've got to hit the right tone between pleading and confidence to get the extension you, it's, you've got to be like oh, no i'm definitely absolutely will have it done within another <laughs> eight days however uh, i just need this bit of extra time yeah it, it, i think i think psychologically it's that you know the book doesn't come out until april right and when you're being yeah. quite rightly handed by lawrence in december you're like yeah. oh but he's okay he's fine he's got Under till april. control he's got no. till april he's then, got 800 then, other reports and then you see then you see the book and it you know it's glory Don't worry, I've, I've heard them all Don't worry. i'm sure you have <laughs> Um, you give a little bit of extra weighting um, to the Australia South Africa series in, 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 uh, in, of course, what happened around this time last year, including a, a, a piece by Greg Baum and Neil Manthorpe sort of coming at it from each of the two countries' perspectives. Um, that isn't usual to have extra pieces in there, but I, I guess it was a series that warranted that additional attention. Uh, it's probably the series that got spoken about by more people in the cricketing world than any other series apart from England and India simply because there are 1.2 billion people in India. But it was the series that was on the tips of everyone's tongues and the, the ramifications and the repercussions last until now and probably will last this summer because there'll still be questions that will be asked of, of, of the Australians. Um, by I think one Australian writer described this recently as the voracious English tabloids. Well, hopefully the voracious <laughs> Aussie tabloids will get into them as well. But it's, so it could be an interesting summer. Yes, no, Australian media wasn't interested in that story at all. No. It? No. No, no, I didn't touch no, it. No coverage whatsoever. Yeah, just left the three to the keeper. We particularly enjoy part nine, the, the rarities and oddities <laughs> section, the dates, the anniversaries, but especially the index of unusual occurrences, which sounds like a Netflix series. <laughs> uh, it's my kind of Netflix series, you know, on page 1492 of, uh, of the Wisdom Almanac. But, I mean, that again, that, that requires a fair bit of research. Even though it's in the back of the book and it's the last 60 or 70 pages, that, that, I mean, I can imagine that's a section that each year provides a perhaps more time than you'd expect where it well, sits we do encourage writers to, to send us quirky stuff if they're not sure send us something that they thought was entertaining we'll see if we can turn it into um, whenever we proofread stuff we're like is that a, an unock because we uh, unusual occurrence is that an unock mm. stick in the back and then uh, it's funny how many people turn to that page first you have a guy who's almost mowed down at mid-on in a, in a <laughs> Ranji Trophy game because the, the guy claimed he, the guy in the car 
who almost hit Gautam Gambier at mid-on, said he was trying to get a shortcut to the airport. So <laughs> there are all kinds of weird things that happen in the index of news occurrences. And all that comes to 1,536 pages. How many words this year, roughly? Oh, I wouldn't have a clue, I have to say. <laughs> I think I said a million last year offhandedly in a piece, but I kind of thought later there could easily be more oh, than I'll be more words. than that. be more than a million. It's an absolute Surely. beast. That really would scare me if I started to count those words. <laughs> Let's go through the mechanics of it, because technically we're on here to plug his book, of course. 49 pounds, I think, from memory, is it? 50 pounds on the, on the cover? 55 is 55 the RRP. On the cover. But, but there's an easy way to get the book a lot cheaper, yeah, and that's be a subscriber, which we all should be. If we're final word listeners, you should, you're should you probably a wisdom collector, and if you are, you can get it for half the price. 25 quid if you subscribe for two years in a row for the Wisdom website, Bloomsbury, go there. It does make a bit more sense. I don't want to talk us out of profits, but that would be the way I'd go. It's more compelling than you should buy the suit because you've already rented two-thirds of the suit. (laughs) (laughs) No, two years will get you. You get two years' worth of books for the price of one book. I'm into that. Well, if you're going to the Wisdom Dinner on a consistent basis, Jeff, you're going to come back each year. You're going to have to buy a tux at some point. That's the argument I put to you, but we'll see. We'll cross that bridge if and when you go and win the award next year. Like I said, I'd I'd rather rather pay the money to not own one. Lawrence Booth, you've been incredibly generous on what is one of the busiest days of the year. Good luck tonight with the dinner, with your speech. I know a lot of people are watching. Congratulations on not only the editor's notes, but what is a quite, quite a mighty book. And, you know, again, we're, we're wisdom nerds, so we love it anyway. But I think this year it's a, one of the, if not the best edition of wisdom I've ever had the great fortune of tucking into. So congratulations and thank you so much for being part of The Final Word. Thanks, guys. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I had to go about it right.